excited that it is almost Thanksgiving. My wife and I are going to Los Angeles. As you all know, my family's the best, and part of my family lives in Los Angeles, so it's going to be the best. Uh, but we're going to L.A. That's going to be awesome. So I'll be gone later today. Don't, don't try to call me. Uh, well, you can, but I probably won't answer. Um, but, you know, my wife and I were talking the other day about my plans for the sermon today, and uh, she had a comment for me, and I thought it was hilarious, because today, although it's almost Thanksgiving and it's supposed to be a time of, you know, great celebration, I was like, I'm going to talk about death. And Ivy was like, Grayson, you're not very good at thematic preaching, are you? And I was, you don't seem to understand that you can't just preach about whatever you want on Thanksgiving. And I was like, no, no, don't worry. It gets better. You know, so today what I want to talk about is how God has given us his resurrection. Right? So I do want to talk about death, but I'm not going to stay there the whole time, I promise. Uh, because that would be, yeah, that would be kind of like morbid, uh, right? So I want to ask you guys, this is a weird request. And if, you, if it's too painful or if you just don't want to do it, that's okay. But I'm going to say a prayer. And I want to ask you guys to stand with me as you pray. And I'll explain why later. All right? Dear Lord, uh, we praise you that we have the season of thanksgiving, that we can just give thanks to you for all the things that you have done, that the most powerful forces of evil in our life, the power of sin and death, you have overcome. We thank you that through Jesus' resurrection we can have life. We pray that today, Lord, your word would illuminate our hearts and give us new understanding that we didn't have before. We just thank you for this opportunity to come together. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you guys to turn to Isaiah chapter 28. We're going to start in the Old Testament because that's what we've been doing. And we'll kind of end out in the New Testament. So the title of today's sermon, this is so high up. The title of today's sermon is Knowing God's Resurrection Power. And, and so I want to look at the story of Israel in the book of Isaiah. What has happened, we've heard this many times, but I'll reiterate, is that you have the kingdom of Israel under David and Solomon, and they're united. There's 12 tribes, and they're all in the same kingdom. And then they split into two kingdoms, north and south. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Northern kingdom was called Israel or Samaria. You know, there's different names for it. And the northern kingdom was much more powerful, much stronger, had 10 tribes. Southern kingdom only had two. But the northern kingdom was also much less faithful to God. And they found themselves in a scary predicament but they don't seem to see it the way that they should. And this is where Isaiah comes in. He preaches both to Judah and to Israel, to both kingdoms, that they need to repent and turn to God and be faithful to him. And so I want us to see what happens with this. We're just going to go through. A, we're going to read quite a bit of Isaiah 28 today. I hope that's okay. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. So let's start in verse 1. It says, Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. 
that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like a fig ripe before harvest. As soon as someone sees it and takes it in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Okay, let's stop right there. So here Isaiah issues a warning to the people of, he calls it Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. And he issues them a warning. He says, woe to you, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. So the city, he's talking about the capital city. The fading flower is the capital city. And he says, people are proud of you. They think you're a beautiful, wonderful city. But I see the truth. Your beauty is fading. Right? You were made to glorify God and to bring praise to him. But instead, you're a drunkard. You're a fool. And you don't see yourself rightly. Right? They thought that this is a great city. I mean, uh, this summer... I went to Rome with Joel and, and some other folks, the Pede family. Um, and Rome used to be such an incredible city, and now most of it is just ruins. And this city that God is talking about is the same way. It used to be this beautiful place, but now it's ruins because God said, you, your beauty is fading because of your choices. But they don't see it, right? They think that they're beautiful, and God says, no, you're not beautiful, because it's faded away, but I'll restore it. I will be the crown and the wreath for the remnant of my people. Are you guys with me so far? So God is warning them that Assyria, this great empire, is going to invade and destroy you. And the beautiful city will be destroyed. And there's nothing you can do about it. And of course they know this, right? They've seen what Assyria has done to all the nations around them. And they know this deep in their hearts that Assyria, this great empire, is coming for them too. And they're scared of it. And that's why it says in verse 7, now he turns not from, not just to the people, but to the leaders of the people in verse 7. And he says, and these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. And there is a not a spot without filth. So here he has an indictment for the leaders of the nation. You guys are also drunkards. And you do not make right judgments because you're drunk. I mean, how can you see the truth if you're a drunk? I've, I've dealt with that before. And it's not possible. People just don't get it. And even when they say they get it, later on the next morning they totally forgot what they said. And so it just doesn't work. And God's saying, you, the leaders of the people, are leading the people even further into their poor decisions. And so, they, so now they respond, okay? This part can be hard to understand, so I want to break it down carefully in verse uh, 9. The people actually respond to Isaiah now. The leaders respond to Isaiah because Isaiah is not saying things that they want to hear. And Isaiah has already said things like this about them numerous times previously in the book. And they're not liking that, so they respond, and they say, Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? So he says, 
Who does Isaiah think that he's talking to? We're not children. We're adults. We know things. And you're wrong, Isaiah. That's how they respond, right? It's like, whatever, Isaiah, I'm an adult. Like, back off me. You know how many times I used to do that, especially to my parents, when I was a total idiot? And I'd be like, whatever, Mom. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's like, no, I didn't know anything. <laughs> it was hilarious. Because when I looked back, I said, wow, I did not know what I was talking about. And they continue their response. And this, this is where it gets really interesting and, and funny. I think God has a sense of humor. They say, for it is, do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. Okay, so the people respond with this weird, in English it just sounds really weird, like, what are you saying? Do and do, do, rule, rule, rule here, there, there, whatever. It doesn't make sense to us. In Hebrew, it's actually an alliteration. It's a repetition of the same sounds over and over. And it sounds like a little baby. Blah, 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 ga, 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 blah, blah, blah. That's what they're trying to do. They're like, whatever, Isaiah, uh. And, Isaiah's, and, and Isaiah has a response to that. But in the Jewish tradition, the way they read that is that the, the, the leaders were basically saying, like, yeah, Isaiah, tell us what to do some more. You sound like a little baby. And Isaiah, of course, <laughs> and God has a response for that. He says, very well then, verse 11, with foreign lips and strange tongues. Okay, you guys sound like a bunch of foreigners who don't know how to speak. I'll teach you with foreigners who don't know how to speak. He's talking about the Assyrians again. God will speak to this people. The Assyrians were not very nice. God was saying there will be a punishment for your reaction to Isaiah. Your refusal to humble yourself. God will speak to this people to whom he said. Now, here's a beautiful thing that God said to his people. This is the resting place. Let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. God says, I wanted you to have rest, to be at peace, to not be at war with Assyria. But you do not want to listen to my message. And so the consequences will come upon you. And then God repeats what they said back to them. So then the word of the Lord to them will become blah, 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 ga, 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 woo, woo, woo. Do and do, a rule of rule, little here, little there. God says, yeah, your word will, my word to you will sound like a child's talk. But the reality is it's wisdom and you're not listening. And he says, this will happen so that they will go and fall backward, be injured and snared and captured. Jesus constantly told the people that were listening to him, those who have ears to hear, let him hear. And the people of Israel in this story, they did not have ears to hear God. They treated God like he was a child when, in fact, they were the children. Right? I mean, again, we do, I've done this to my parents so many times. Like, oh, Dad, you just don't understand. And it's like my dad's like sitting there with about a billion times the understanding that I have. And I think I'm just brilliant. And the reality is my dad goes, no, you're the one who doesn't understand. And someday you will, and it's going to come the hard way, and I would try to spare you that, right? And that's what God is trying to do for Israel, but they're not listening. And now here comes the, the definitive response. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you mockers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave we have made an agreement when an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. 
So now God gets to the root of the issue. What's really going on in their hearts? It's not just that you disregard me. It's that you do not have a grasp of reality. Josh, do I have that quote on the next slide? Can we go to that? It says this. This is an interesting quote. It's from a book called The Denial of Death. And it says, man literally drives himself into a blind obliviousness with social games, psychological tricks, and personal preoccupations so far removed from the reality of his situation that they are forms of madness, but madness all the same. And that's the central premise of the book. It's, you know, I don't agree with everything in the book. I'm not necessarily recommending that you read it, but that point is good. He says, people are so afraid of death that they pretend like it's never going to happen. They preoccupy themselves with games and psychological tricks. And he argues that all of society is set up to make us feel like we're never going to die. You know, we always have a saying like, oh, the young think that they're immortal. And it's true. I remember feeling like when I was really young, like, oh, I, you know, life's going to go. I have so much time. And now I'm 26, and I'm sitting here like, I don't have as much time as I thought. You know, when I was 16, I was, I was laying in my bed, 15, actually. I was laying in my bed, and I was just thinking about, like, wow, I'm going to die. And I thought about that all the time. I just had this gnawing fear in my heart. I'm going to die. And so what did I do? I played video games. I played sports. I pretended like that wasn't a real thing. And that's exactly what his point is. We, we pretend that we have a covenant with death. The people of Israel were telling themselves, no, 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 Assyria might come, but we'll be fine. We'll be fine. It's okay. We spoke to death. And back in this time, people viewed death as a very like live, it was like a force that actively sought people out and, and swallowed them up. And they're like, yeah, we went and spoke to death, and we told them, like, hey, can you back off us? We, we don't want to die. And then we just pretended like nothing happened, and what did we do? We ate and we drank, for tomorrow we die. They were like, well, all we have is today, so we're just going to pretend like tomorrow doesn't mean anything. That's a quote from earlier on in Isaiah, and it's quoted multiple times in the scriptures. See, the consequence of ignoring reality is that we begin to live in ways that do not make sense. We begin to live in ways that do not line up with the reality that we're going to die. We waste time. We choose to pursue sinful things. I mean, I've done this so many times, right? Prior to becoming a disciple, there was no hope, so I might as well just do whatever I want. There's no reason to obey God's commands because I'm going to die. Who cares? And this is what they're saying, like, we're not going to die, Lord, like, it's okay. We've made a covenant with death. So that was their choice. And the result of this is a sinful life because they have nothing else to live for. You know, this is, this is not at all different from American society. People say, you know, well, we're going to die, so I guess we'll just pretend like that's not going to happen. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live my best life now. What do you mean your best life now? You only have one. <laughs> I'm going to live my best life now. So that means I'm going to eat the cheesecake, right? I love cheesecake, so whatever. I'll just eat it. And then there's the other guy who says, no, my best life is I need to be really fit, so I'm not going to eat the cheesecake. And we can view that as like, what a self-controlled man. But the reality is he's still only serving his own desires. I want to be fit. Therefore, I don't eat cheesecake. Or I don't care about that. I just like cheesecake and I eat it. There's no difference in the root, in the heart. They feel that they have a covenant with death and they're just going to live their best life. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, it says, this isn't on the PowerPoint, 
This is the reality that the Bible teaches us. This is where people are at. It says, I'm sorry, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know, there's really two things that the Bible connects to us being enslaved, sin and death. Our fear of death drives us towards sin, and we just do it more and more because we know that we're going to die and we have nothing else. But Jesus came to save us from that fear so that we could be set free, not only from the power of death, but from the power of sin. Okay, check out how God continues in Isaiah 28. So it's, it seems like counterintuitive to the way things have been going so far. God's been very stern, very disciplinary, corrective. And then all of a sudden, God kind of switches. And he, he responds to the lie that they've been saying about their covenant with death in verse 16. And he says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts in it will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. So God says, your covenant with death is not going to last, but I've given you something new. There's going to be a stone, a precious cornerstone that you can put your trust in, and you will never be dismayed. You will never be ashamed. And death, somehow this covenant with death will be annulled, and something better will come. Now this is something that can seem cryptic, but the New Testament makes it very clear. God is offering a covenant with him through Jesus. Jesus is, if you turn to 1 Peter, uh, sorry, taking me a second. 1 Peter chapter 2. Actually, Josh, could you go to the next slide? I think it's on there. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, as you come to him, in verse 4, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For, in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So here Peter reminds them, there is a living stone that you can be sure and confident and your whole fear of death can be done away with if you put your trust in Jesus. But he says there are some who stumble over the rock. It's like if you were walking and you just tripped. I've, I've done, I ran into a stump one time in the dark. It hurt really bad. And I did a front flip because I didn't see it. I stumbled over it and it became the stump of a fence and I was upset. 
This is what has happened, right? People have seen Jesus, and instead of truly seeing him and believing in him and trusting in him, that he can overcome their greatest fear of death, of meaninglessness, of nothingness, they stumble over it, and they actually oppose him, and they reject him on that basis. And I was once like that. I was someone who went to church every Sunday and rejected Jesus every Sunday. I rejected Jesus every day, not just on Sunday, and I lived controlled by my fears. But Peter says we don't have to be this way. Why? All we have to do, he says, is obey the message. They stumble because they disobey the message. And what is that message? Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Here's where it gets really good. Acts chapter 2. Verse 20. So I broke it up a little bit, so we're not going to follow Acts 2 exactly. I want to give you the message that he gave, apart from the quotations that he gives from Scripture to back it up, because we've already seen some of them. But it says this in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So he says, you guys were living controlled by your fear. Fear of Jesus and his message, fear of death and its consequences. And so you killed the messenger, which is exactly, by the way, what the Israelites did to Isaiah. They killed him. They killed most of the prophets that went to them because they didn't like the message. And they opposed them. So they killed Jesus. But he says it was impossible for the grave to keep its hold on him. Why was it impossible? Because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus was without sin. And so death had no right to take him, and God raised him from the dead. Now that is a type of power that we can't even fathom. You know, we have all sorts of powers today, right? We have planes and cars, medical devices, all these things, mostly to make our lives better and to prolong them as long as we can. But we can't stop death. No matter how hard we try, every single person in this room will die. And that's a sad reality. Have you ever tried to hide a reality from yourself or from others that is so obvious to everyone who's not, you know, in your shoes? <laughs> Once, I was, a, I was young, so I don't know that there was any sin involved in this, but I was young, and I was in fourth grade, and I had to go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom, you know, normal stuff, and I had a hard time, and I accidentally, you know, Soiled my pants. And I decided this is very embarrassing. This is a truth that I don't feel so good about. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to crawl into the classroom, and nobody will see that my pants are wet. <laughs> so I, I crawled in, and my teacher was like, hey, Grayson, what you doing? And I was like, oh, I just love crawling. Okay, this is in fourth grade, right? But I know enough to be embarrassed, and I tried to hide it. 
And she was like, oh, come here. Can, can I talk to you? And she's like, what happened? And I'm like, oh, I just couldn't get the button undone. And it's so bad. And she was like, well, why don't you just go home? And I was like, yes. I, can, I get to go home. I should do this more often. But the reality is that, I, that that was in fourth grade. I haven't forgot it for years because I was so embarrassed. And I tried so hard to hide it, and I couldn't hide it. I couldn't hide it. You know, some of us in this room have things that we're trying to hide. Maybe it's our fears. Maybe it's our weaknesses, or maybe it's our sin. And it's time to be open and just repent. Because God has promised if we do that, there's a reward through Jesus. And it's so worth it. You know, when I came clean to the teacher, I got to leave. <laughs> I was free. But when I was hiding, I wasn't free. I was crawling around like a fool. And all my classmates were probably like, what is his problem? <laughs> it was obvious to everyone but me that that wasn't going to work. And it's the same with us, right? We can feel like our covenant with death will be effective. But it's obvious to God and to anyone with the right vision that that's not going to work. It doesn't matter how hard you try. And so let's keep reading in Acts. So it says, fellow Israelites... Sorry, let me find my verse, actually. I don't want to read off the screen. Fellow Israelites, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch, David, died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Brothers and sisters, this is a fact handed down to us from some of the most trustworthy people who ever lived. Trustworthy because they were with Jesus, and he taught them to speak the truth. And that's what they did. And so, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So here he reiterates. It's interesting, he keeps coming back to this. You know, in our world, we tend to fixate on the crucifixion. And it certainly is a vital thing that we need to pay attention to. But we often forget the resurrection. And Peter right now, he's not fixated on the fact that Jesus was killed. He's, he's trying to show them that Jesus was vindicated by God and shown to be the cornerstone. Someone that we can put our trust in and not be ashamed and he finishes out, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So there's actually, you know, when people ask, what's the gospel? There's actually a way you could show them just with your body. Really simple. What you do is you lie down like you're dead. Lie down like you're dead. And then you get back up and you sit down. That's exactly how the Bible describes what Jesus did. He was killed and he was laid in a tomb. And then the Greek word, and this is something that we miss because we don't speak Greek and that's okay. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. It means to stand up. Jesus stood up. And then what did he do? He went to the Father's side and he sat down. So when we think about how should we respond to the fact that we are dead in our sins. The Bible tells us that we're all dead in our sins apart from God. 
How do we respond? Well, here's the response. It says this in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. You know, we're 2,000 years later, and we're still hearing the same message. There's a reason. It's true. And what Peter says to them, when they're cut to the heart, so there's an emotional response that they had. They felt sorrow. And Peter says, he says, repent means to change your heart, to change the way that you view things. Stop having a covenant with death and make a covenant with Jesus. Be baptized. You know, in Romans 6, it describes baptism as a burial and a standing again. And now what we're called to do is to walk on the path. Just like Jesus walked to his father's side and sat down. His work was finished and he was at peace. Right? There was no more people persecuting him or torturing him. And that's what we have to look forward to. And this is something that the early church understood really well. And actually for a thousand years, they forbid that people would kneel on a Sunday. Now that's not in the Bible, but it's in their teachings outside of the Bible. And so I don't think we have to do it. But the reason is simple. Can we go to the next slide? It says this. This is from Basil, approximately 350 A.D. And for the next, like, essentially a thousand years, they said the same thing over and over. We don't kneel on a Sunday because on Sunday, Jesus was resurrected. He said, we pray standing on the first day of the week. That is Sunday. But we do not all know the reason. On the day of the resurrection or, as he wrote in Greek, standing again. On the day of the standing again. We remind ourselves of the grace given to us by standing at prayer. Not only because we rose with Christ and are bound to seek those things which are above, but because the day seems to us to be in some sense an image of the age which we expect. See, the world that we live in is ruled by sin and death. But he's saying there's a new age coming and there's a new time coming when, when people will be called to stand. And there will be a resurrection. And death will no longer rule over God's church. And sin will have no dominion. It will just be freedom. On this day, the rules of the church have ed educated us to prefer the upright attitude of prayer. For that, by their plain reminder, they, as it were, make our mind to dwell no longer in the present, but in the future. You know, the world teaches us that let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But God teaches us, put your minds on the future when I will raise you again. Some of us have never been baptized. And the scripture teaches, we just read it, that you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins because it's a participation in Jesus standing again, in Jesus lying down and standing again. And some of us, we're not really walking the walk. You know, Jesus, he walked to the Father's side. He ascended to the throne. We have decided, and I've done this, Spent a whole year of my Christian life, for sure, just not walking the walk at all and didn't care. But we just have decided that the walk that Jesus walked is not the walk that we want to walk. And at the end of time, I would say that then you will not sit at the Father's side because you have not walked to him. You have decided that you don't want it anymore. Maybe you were baptized. Maybe you were buried and resurrected, so to speak. But you haven't walked the walk. 
and I'm calling you to repent. And so I say all that because I want us to be able to give thanks on Sunday. Sometimes we get a little somber, and I do that. I have a tendency, it's my natural tendency to be somber. You should be joyous because Jesus has risen again. And this Thanksgiving and every day and every Sunday, I want to pray that we can give thanks to God, that we can be born again to a new and living hope, that we can have joy regardless of our circumstances because we know that our circumstances are not permanent. Amen. Let's stand and pray one more time. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you teach us to stand and pray on a Sunday, that you teach us that there's a blessing in that because we can remember that Jesus stood again. I pray that all of us would just have gratitude in our hearts for that fact, that you have not allowed our covenant with death to be the last word, but you have sent Jesus to be the last word for us, that we can hear of a new covenant and that we can walk in newness of life. Lord, as we take communion, I pray that you help us to remember his death, but also his resurrection. That it wouldn't just be a somber time, but a time of joyous celebration in his victory. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.